Welcome to Flipping the Script, a podcast for women of color by women of color, helping you to not just navigate your way through change, but to embrace it. I am your host, Michelle Words. Nicole Pinnock is a Canadian currently living in the United States. Nicole is truly a global citizen and shares with us her expat experiences and how they have shaped her and her career. Let's get to it. I am not where you want to be Trying to navigate life but it's hard to see I am struggling to make a change We're coming to me now is the perfect chance With nothing to script so you'll find your way To help you embrace any trials you face With nothing to script Nicole Pinnock has a combined 20 years of experience in healthcare, health promotion, and social impact, 11 of which she worked as a certified athletic therapist in professional and intercollegiate sports and was a member of the sports medicine team for the USA track and field. In a recent role, she was the director of the Global Center for Inclusion in Education for Special Olympics Incorporated. In her role, Nicole was responsible for overseeing a $25 million grant from the Crown Prince Court Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates in the global expansion of Unified Champion Schools model. Before joining Special Olympics, Nicole was the manager of patient education for Sidra Medicine, the first women and pediatric specialty hospital in Doha, Qatar. She joined Sidra in the project phase where she was responsible for overseeing activities required to achieve a safe patient hospital and outpatient clinic clinic opening, which included the development of corporate operation manuals and policies. Currently, she is the manager of patient and family-centered education at a level one pediatric hospital in Arizona. A native of Toronto, Canada, Nicole graduated with a bachelor's degree in health and physical education from Howard University and holds two master's degrees, one in kinesiology from Indiana University and one in health promotion management from American University. Nicole also has certifications as a certified athletic therapist and as a certified health education specialist. Nicole, welcome to Flipping the Script. Hi, Michelle. Thank you for having me. It's a great honor to be on your podcast. Thank you for joining me. So, Nicole, you know, I've known you for several years now, but we're going to start from the beginning because I know that my audience does not know who Nicole Pinnock is. So I've already mentioned that you're Canadian. Yes. And you went to Howard University. So you decided to leave your home country. Okay, the illustrious Howard University. <laughs> you you know, I know. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh-huh. So you decided to leave your home country, though, at an early age. What made you leave Canada to attend Howard University in Washington, D.C.? Great. Thanks for the question. Um, I think 
what inspired me first and foremost was that my family really strives for academics and academic excellence. So I was looking for an institution that was going to give me that academic experience. I was looking to go to med school at the time. So I was a biology major and Howard was, you know, at the top with Xavier and Spellman with regard to uh, propelling young African-Americans into med schools. So that was one of the primary focuses of going to Howard University. But I've been traveling since I was a kid. When I think about it, you know, um, I was born overseas. I was born in Trinidad and I've been a global citizen and nomad. I think my entire life, we traveled a lot in my childhood and um, leaving home was just sort of, sort of the next natural progression for me. I knew I didn't want to stay in Toronto or stay in Canada. I felt like I had outgrown it because by the time I went to university, I had already traveled throughout Europe, the Caribbean, and even Japan and Russia at that point. So when I got to university, I was a lot more um, experienced globally, as well as slightly older than my peers, because back then in Canada, we did five years of high school. There was like a preparatory year. Um, in the UK, you hear about the gap year. In Canada at that time, in my province of Toronto, of Ontario, we did an OAC year, which was like a prep year for university. So I think it would be the equivalent of like AP courses in the U.S. You'd do like a year of AP courses. Interesting. I didn't know that. So I know that my mother almost had a nervous breakdown when I left Southern California <laughs> to go to undergrad in Northern California. Mm-hmm. So how did your parents feel about you leaving the country to go to university? They never really expressed to me verbally, you know, their concerns or hesitations. But remember, my parents are immigrants. So I think leaving home was normal or at least something that was common to them. I mean, they never left Canada after they settled. But my mother left the Caribbean and went to England, studied nursing in England and then immigrated to Canada. My father left Jamaica and came to Canada. So I think it's natural for new opportunities. You 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 seek out other places and other spaces. So that was very common in our culture, in our community. Um, obviously, I think uh, there was some apprehension because the U.S. was the big bad land of the U.S. And this is in the 90s. And D.C. was a very high crime city at the time. But it was Howard University, which has a huge reputation in the Caribbean community. Like if you look back, Island Scholars would send their islands would send their top scholars to schools in the US like Howard and Spelman and Morehouse. And so there was that reputation that Howard had that I think probably put them at ease. You know, they dropped me there. They they we drove down from Toronto. I remember staying at the Courtyard Marriott downtown and, you know, talking to the uh hotel staff to secure our car in the parking lot because it was full mm-hmm. of my belongings. And, mm-hmm. you know, back then Howard um I lived off campus because my my freshman class was the largest in history at the time. There was a class of 2000. And so I was housed off campus on 16th Street. So I could walk down 16th Street, a long walk, but nonetheless directly to the White House. And so that neighborhood was not as gentrified as it is now. And so my dad is a was a police officer at the time, and there was a lot of apprehension there. But I'll be very honest with you. When they left, I remember, you know, my father saying, um, don't come back don't come home because there's no other opportunity for you. And what he meant by that is that you've outgrown this environment. I think one thing about Canada is it's a great country and a great city of Toronto. There is a bit of stagnation there. Like people just sort of set up shop and they live there and they stay there and they don't really leave. It's the major city of Canada, the largest city in Canada. And so um, he knew that there was just not 
more for me to conquer there. Like I was very well engaged and versed in my city and he knew I had traveled. So his whole attitude was, um, don't come back. You can always come home, but don't come back. There's nothing there for you. And so I think at the end of the day, they were probably sad that I left, but knew that I didn't need to be sort of pigeonholed back home in Toronto. Okay. So then I know that you said that you were thinking of what pre-med, but then you decided on health and physical education led you in that path. So I, of course, wanted to be a doctor as a kid. I either wanted to be a pediatrician or I wanted to go into what we would call sports medicine. And what I didn't know back then was sports medicine was essentially you go to med school and become an orthopedic doctor. And, you know, there's different realms of sports medicine now. Like there are, there are definitely sports medicine practitioners who don't operate. They're almost like internists or family medicine doctors who specialize in sports injury from a non-surgical perspective. But that didn't exist back then. And I, as a freshman at Howard, became the manager for the swim team. I was looking for just a volunteer opportunity because volunteerism has been really a part of my life since my early teens. And someone mentioned, hey, the swim team is looking for managers. And so I went and I started working with the swim team. And Dr. Jackson, who is the was the head coach of the swim team, you know, he is a doctorate and very well educated and, uh, you know, would ask us questions about where we wanted to go and what we wanted to do in life. And I talked about sports medicine and he's the one who explained the whole, you know, there's no real like sports medicine branch. You, you need to become an orthopedic doctor. And he walked me down to what was then the sports medicine athletic training room and introduced me to Sonny and Bernard, the head and assistant athletic trainers, and um, started to talk to them and observe what they did in the, in the training room and the, the realm of prevention, treatment, and rehabilitation of athletic injury. And I thought, oh, this is a great space. I'd like to be here. So after my sort of second semester, I started to put in some hours down there. And by my sophomore year, I was in the athletic training room full time and then eventually changed my major because I knew I wasn't going to med school. That was a huge commitment that I didn't see myself making. You're Here you are at 19, married to your textbooks and married to the lab while your friends are having fun. And it wasn't just about having fun, but I just thought this is not the life I want to live. I don't want to be buried in books. I don't want to be worried and angst about taking exams and also the cost. I mean, we talk about student loans now, um, but yes. just what the financial commitment was going to be to me, I'm a very practical and rational person and it didn't, it didn't make sense. Now, granted, I could have gone other places to med school. I probably could have gone back to Canada. It was cheaper. I could even probably have gone to the Caribbean because, you know, I was born technically there. Someone was saying, you know, you could have gone to the University of the West Indies um, and, and even just overseas to Europe. But that just was not the sort of the, the, the path at the time. It was, you know, where you go to university, you sort of progress onto med school and like I said, I just didn't think I wanted to make that long-term commitment. I wanted to just make sure that I lived a balanced life. I, like, I knew that at a very young age. Like I just didn't want to be bogged down with too much um, responsibility that didn't guarantee a life of happiness, if that makes sense. Sure. Absolutely. So at that time, you were more on the sports track. So what led you to transition to work in the hospital setting? Sure. Um, I, after, you know, sports, the sports track, I started in my, like I said, my, my freshman, sophomore year, and I went to grad school in Indiana. I was assigned cross country track and field. And after that, I interned with the Indiana Pacers for a year. And then I worked at Morris Brown for a short time. This was before they lost their accreditation and returned back to Howard. So at that point I had spent about, you know, eight to 10 years in sports, you know, including the undergrad. And I knew that to sort of get ahead in that 
field meant I had to go either Midwest to a bigger school, a predominantly white school, and I was working at an HBCU. And I just wasn't ready to make that sacrifice and commitment. And also physically, I think I was a little bit burnt out. I had sort of injured my back at that point. And athletic training is very physically demanding. You're on your feet a lot outside or inside at practices. You're lifting and lugging heavy equipment. You're providing care. And I just didn't know my body was going to withstand it. And like I said, career trajectory wise, I mean, I was just reading yesterday about the first head athletic trainer for a um, major, I think it was a major basketball team. And I thought that's great. It's exciting. But those opportunities, DEI did not exist 20 years ago for women of color, even though we were very much a part of the athletic training profession. You know, I was very privileged, like I said, to intern with the Pacers, but there just was an opportunity for me to stay there and grow there, even though that's what I wanted to do. So I'm a very reflective practice kind of person. I just was thinking, well, what's next, right? You know, I've hit all these markers in life. I have a bachelor's degree, a master's degree. I'm certified. Am I just going to stay here or, you know, what do I want to do long term? I was living in Washington, D.C. You know, it's the capital of policy and, you know, government affairs. And one of my mentors suggested that I, you know, and my aunt as well, who's a human rights attorney, suggested I look into policy. And so I pursued a master's degree at American University in health promotion management. It was health focused. It wasn't quite a full MBA. There was a business component, so it's not a full MBA, but it was also focused on health and wellness and how the the two sides kind of marry the business side and the wellness side and the health side. And so I thought this was a good path for me. And I did the policy track, global health policy, and that's where I sort of put my focus. I ended up interning for a couple of small nonprofits. And then I got a job at Children's National in advocacy and community affairs. However, I wasn't in in full-on advocacy. What I ended up doing was program planning and implementation. So they had asked me to, well, I was a health educator, and they had asked me to basically implement programs. I also designed a few programs. But the data that we collected from those programs fueled the advocacy side. So I designed an oral health program based on a needs assessment that had come out of the RAND Corporation around oral health in in children. And so that data helped fuel the reimbursement for Medicaid that Children's Hospital was pursuing at the time, injury prevention data, primary medical home data, and things of that nature. So I kind of fell into the health uh, education realm. And they also paid for the certification for health education specialists. That's sort of a, a professional standard that they were pursuing. And they asked me to sit for it, that they would compensate me for it. And I thought, why not? If you're paying, sure, I'll do it. Right. So, so that's how I fell into it. And I, I have to admit, yeah. I really loved it. I loved the engagement with the community. I worked a lot in Southeast Washington, DC and other underserved areas and the moms and the families and the parents looked like me. So they related to me, they would communicate with me. And so I can share information and resources and educate um, them on, you know, how to care for their child in terms of, you know, oral health and injury prevention and safety. So I really loved doing that work because you can see the immediate impact and the reward. And I have to be honest, policy is very important. And, you know, now that I'm in leadership and management, you do see where policy is important. But I hate the bogged down, drawn out long process of policy and the back and forth and the 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 language like it's yeah it's tedious right and so yeah. it's not as exciting the red tape it, yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent politics it's also, necessary like possibly. if you understand yeah. the, the spectrum of policy and and it's very very necessary like when we talk about police reform healthcare reform policy is the governing body but it can really drain your energy and it can be some 
pretty strong battles as well. And I just, I don't like to waste my time. I want my time to be fruitful. Uh, I'd like a little reciprocity to see the impact. And I liked, I liked the impact aspect of designing and implementing, collecting information. And, and that's where the social impact work comes in, right? You're, you're measuring what you're doing and you can redesign and re-implement and things of that nature. Okay. So that actually leads me to what you did, well, next, or at least soon down your path. What led you to Doha, Qatar? Because it seems the position that you held there then was kind of all-encompassing of what you just said that you really enjoy. Yeah, thanks. You know, it's really interesting. Everything in your life is in divine order, if you believe in that, and I do. And I think all my experiences, good and bad, painful and bright, lead me to um, uh, my next you know, opportunity, my next experience, and they they inform that experience as well. So I had to go back to Canada in 2011. So I'm not a U.S. citizen. You know, I've been an expat pretty much since I left home and a global citizen. And so my work visa options had come to an end. And so I returned to Toronto in 2019 and one of my, excuse me, 2011. And one of my jobs was at a level one uh, trauma hospital downtown Toronto. And again, in the role of patient education, and it was a maternity leave position, so it really was technically for one year. So that person was coming back to their job, and I was looking for a new job. And I found two roles. One was with the British Medical Journal, and one was this new hospital in Doha, Qatar, and it was called Citra Medicine, and I kept seeing it in my searches and my searches and my searches. So naturally, I start doing the research. Like, first of all, where is this country, Qatar? Okay, it's in the Middle East. Is it safe? Can women drive? Can I have rights? You know, all those things. And I, what did I do? I applied to, to both the BMJ and to Sidra. I interviewed for the BMJ. With Sidra, there was a recruiting company, and um, they are actually a few blocks from the hospital based in Toronto. They called me, like, right away, and they said they would follow up with me. And when they did follow up, they said I had to be a nurse. Now, granted, the job description did not say you had to be a nurse. It was healthcare professional, like, you know, with these degrees and experience. But they had sort of rejected me. However, I still went and applied on the Sidra website. You know, it's one of those, the, the kids call it now, like shoot your shot. Like I was very much like <laughs> closed mouths don't get fed. You know, I don't believe what you're saying. I think you're a gatekeeper and I don't like that. So I applied anyways. Um, I ended up getting and taking the British Medical Journal job that had me starting in Canada and then eventually relocating back to the U.S. in 2014. And in January 2013, I get an email from Sidra asking to interview me. And I was like, is this, you know, like, is this spam? Like, is this a joke? Because who, who applies for a job? And then a year later <laughs> gets, a, gets an email <laughs> saying, Hey, we will still want to interview you for this job. Right. Okay. So the interview was set up for like February, the first week of February. Now, mind you, I'm working for another company and we were going on our North American sort of retreat. Our, our C-suite was coming in from the UK. We were staying in a hotel downtown Toronto. All of the, the North American staff was coming to DC. And so I was kind of antsy about this, but the interview was like, I want to say four in the morning, something crazy like that, mm -hmm. four or five. I remember laying out my clothes and, you know, all this kind of stuff and Skype and all these things were really new back then. So I just didn't know if it was going to be Skype audio or or video. So I had like tested my my laptop and my tablet to see everything was working and, you know, you know, tied down my hair in a bun and all these things. So had my sweater set ready to go. So I get up 
you know, to do the interview and I log on <laughs> and they're like, oh, we can't see you. And I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> and so like, I like, give me a minute, let's re-log in. And in that minute, like I had whipped back on the sweater set, whipped off my scarf and like, <laughs> was camera ready. <laughs> right. Cause they didn't say whether like now, you know, with interviewing you, they tell you it's you know, naturally it's going to be a zoom or a Skype or what, or a team's meeting kind of thing. And so naturally the cameras are involved, but back then that was not a common thing just what 10 years ago, give or take. Now that's the standard. And so whip myself together, mind you, I'm in like my sleep shorts. So I get on and I do this interview and I, interview goes really well because the job is very much aligned to the job I was currently doing. And maybe within a week later or so, I had gotten, I, I air quote this, a rejection letter. It wasn't a definitive no, but it was one of those lollygag letters that says, you were great, but we're seeking other people or we're expanding our search, you know, that kind of stuff. So I was like, oh, okay, well, that, you know, no harm, no foul. I still have a job. Right. And then I had compiled a folder of stuff on Qatar, whether it be like articles and and just information. And, and I had this this blue folder. And I remember sitting in a, sitting on my desk and I was cleaning up my office in DC and I went to grab it and throw it in the trash can. I literally remember physically being stopped. Nothing was stopping me, but I remember being stopped and thought, oh, you should hang on to this. You never know when you might miss. Now, mind you, I don't know nothing about Qatar or any other job opportunities, but I never threw away the folder. Fast forward about a month or so later into March, I got another email for a second interview and I thought, is this normal too? Because <laughs> I thought I got a rejection letter. Like I went back and looked for the email and I was like, yeah, isn't this kind of sort of a rejection, <laughs> but okay. And I, I literally wanted to email them. This is how naive it was. I wanted to email them and said, oh, I think I got this in error. You know what I mean? Like, but I was like, okay. So I prepared myself this time for the second interview and it was, two, it was the, the director and somebody else. And I remember bless your heart, Elaine, I remember getting on and um, the, the laptop was sort of tilted down and I heard the director say to the other director who was on, he was a director in the sort of the IT realm saying, this is the one I was talking about. She's really good. And I like, I like froze because <laughs> I thought, oh no, I've got to live up to some expectation here. Right. <laughs> so I get on and they, they cut through the meat. There was not, the, it was a, there was one question about, can you tell this Dr. Niaz about who you are and where you're from? And we got into the meat and the potatoes and he got straight. He obviously did some research on me because he said, look, I know that you've worked at this hospital that has this software that we're looking to acquire. And I know you work for the British Medical Journal. Um, you know, we're looking at vetting these two products. Which which product? How would you vet them and which product would you choose? And I gave an honest answer. And he, him, and they both looked at each other and literally like nodded, <laughs> like almost like, and I didn't know really what that meant, but the interview went really well. And then, like I said, a week or two later, I got, an, I got, you know, a formal offer uh, for the job. I don't even know if I knew what the salary was. It was just the offer. And you're just excited because, you know, when you're going through that process, sure. you just kind of want to win. Yeah. And so, you know what, let me hold, let me stop you for a minute there, because just from what you've told us so far, there are a lot of lessons to be learned that I want to make sure to emphasize. Yeah, for sure. For, for sure. one thing, you said that just because the recruitment company, because fortunately you knew that they were recruiting for Sidra Medicine. So even if the mm -hmm. recruitment company through their vetting decided that they didn't want to refer you further, you took it another step further and went on Sidra's website and applied for the position. So I think that is yes. a lesson to be learned for everyone. You know, apply through all avenues. 
because one no for sure may not be a no through another avenue. And then also, hundred percent. yeah, I think that is something really important to emphasize, especially for people that are looking to work abroad, right? Definitely. I mean, one of, one of the things to also like inform how I go about doing these things is that like, just even applying to school, like when you talked about how did I go to Howard, like I applied to Howard, Spelman, Xavier, and I think a couple other, I don't even remember, but Howard was always at the top of my list. Same thing with grad school. I had applied to San Diego, UC San Diego, uh, Chapel Hill, uh, a school in Florida, and a few others. And it was one of another mentor, Dr. Jackson, who who had left Howard at the time, but was back on campus visiting, who had said, you need to apply to Indiana. We have this reciprocity of sending our best there. And so I applied to Indiana. And as an international student, you have a you have a deadline that's before the regular students, right? It's like usually a couple months before. And I applied. And when everyone was getting their sort of letters acceptance, I never heard anything. And so I called Indiana, literally, and spoke to the graduate advisor and said, hi, you know, I applied and I never heard back. And he was like, well, when did you apply? And I was like, November. He's like, uh, let me walk over to admissions and I will get back to you tomorrow. And I thought, okay. And the next day I got a letter, an email from Dr. Schrader with an acceptance to Indiana and a grad assistantship to the program. And ironically, where I'm living now in the state of Arizona, he lives here and I've touched base to connect with him. But it was that follow up and follow through that I learned, you know, during my time as an undergrad from Howard. And the same thing, you know, with the Pacers, I left Indiana uh, with no job, or I shouldn't say with no job. Here I am ready to graduate grad school and I didn't have a job opportunity. And Isaiah Thomas had become the head, the head coach for the Indiana Pacers. So I know the Thomas family very well. His niece is a good friend of mine. And again, my grad advisor went to Purdue with the head athletic trainer for the Indiana Pacers. And um, somehow I finagled myself an interview with David Craig and, you know, found my way up into Indianapolis. And that interview was very informal. Like normally you go and interview, I I thought he was going to talk about skills and about assessments and treatment. We talked about everything except healthcare. We talked about politics, religion, the global affairs, everything you're not supposed to talk about in an interview. And by the end of it, David said, okay, well, I have some friends in the industry. I'm going to put out some feelers and I'll let you know. And I thought, I didn't come all this way to, to get, to get a, you know, a rejection. And I said, what about an opportunity to work with you? Like, is that possible? And he said, ah, oh, you know, I kind of have a young guy that I, I have under my wing, but let me think about it. I'll get back to you. So I thought, okay, that's the subtle letdown, but no big deal. I asked, but he didn't say no. I, after grad school, got a, an opportunity to go to Durban, South Africa for the World Conference on Racism in 2001. So I left Indiana, went in to D.C. to stay with a friend, flew out of Dallas Airport, you know, to London, to Joburg, to Durban, attended the conference. And on the way back, I got stuck in London during 9-11. I literally was in a Harrods department store when the second tower was hit and stuck there for like another week. And MSN Messenger was the big vehicle at the time. And I, my friend Raquel reached out and said, hey, where are you? David, David's looking for you. I thought, well, I'm stuck in London. He's like, well, he wants you to come back to Indiana. He wants you to, to intern with him. I was like, what? Really? <laughs> okay. And so I finally made it back to the U.S. And what happened was I was broke. Remember, this is grad school. You're broke. You're so broke. You're, you're broke. I had a ticket that I had bought from Indiana that was a round trip because it was cheaper back then to buy a round trip ticket. And my return ticket was for September 12th. 
And I remember watching the news saying, you know, airlines are honoring all tickets that had been canceled after nine, after September 11th. And, you know, you need to call these numbers to use your ticket. And I thought, I wonder if they'll honor this ticket. And I called U.S. Airways and said, hey, I bought my return ticket was was September 12th and I'd like to return to Indiana. Is there any way that I can use my ticket? They're like, OK, yeah, sure. When would you like to go? I thought, oh, um, OK. <laughs> and that's how I got back to Indiana. And so those little experiences of just sort of like speaking up fueled me even more because the worst thing that somebody could say was no, like I was not going to get arrested. I was not going to be, you know, punished. The worst thing is they could say no, and then I have to come up with another solution. So that has fueled sort of my momentum in life when I see an opportunity and I get fearful. It's like, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? And usually it's a no, and then you have to find another way. So when I, same thing with Sidra, when the recruiter said no, I thought, well, what's the other way? And the other way was to apply to their website directly. You know, I've seen it now from the other side, from their perspective, because the university, I do recruiting, well, I participate in the interview process for incoming faculty and stuff like that for my department. And, you know, on their end, they're concerned, is this candidate serious about coming to the Middle East? Because they know they have a difficulty with with recruiting Westerners often, you know, to come to the Middle East because of, you know, beliefs that people have of this being a dangerous area and all of these other things. And, you know, women, you know, can't do anything and all of these different reasons. And so they're concerned, is this person serious? So if you continue to express your interest, then they know that you are a candidate that is seriously even accepting the position because they will often get in the position where, you know, they'll make an offer and then the person won't take it or they take it and then they don't show up. You know, there's so many different things that can happen. So you absolutely have to continue to express your interest if you really are interested. And, you know, of course, besides your qualifications and everything, though, that'll help to bring you to the top, you know, as the candidate, because they want somebody too sure. that's just going to say, yes, I'm coming and I'll be there. <laughs> But that applies to everything. So, I mean, with the BMJ, it was something similar. So when I, at the British Medical Journal, I had applied for the job. This was, again, also using LinkedIn. First time ever applying for a job using LinkedIn. There was a middle person who, I guess, a recruiter who was handling that process. And I remember one day waking up to an email saying that person was no longer working for the British Medical Journal. This was the person you needed to contact moving forward. And, and essentially that hiring was on hold. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. And so I wrote that person just to say, hey, please let me know when you plan to resume the the process, I'm, I'm interested. And I think that's, like you said, it put me to the top because she was coming to Toronto to my hospital for, an int- for a meeting and asked to meet. And so I facilitated that. I actually got a conference room so she didn't have to come to my office. That would have been odd to do your your next job in your own office, right? So I facilitated getting a conference room and, you know, trying to make it as neutral as possible. Again, it's sort of these informal meetings. And again, later on, I thought, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to get this job only to not only get the job, but for them to say, hey, we're going to sponsor you, your, your work visa to the U.S. And I was like, oh, oh, OK, sure. And so, it, like I said, you know, these kind of reaffirm my actions of just being persistent and being open to possibility and even the possibility of failure. Right. And even the possibility of the no. 
I don't think that's just the like a dead end. I think it just fuels you or it informs your next step. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now speaking of next steps, I know that after you returned to Canada for a little while, now you're flipping your script again and you've returned back to the United States. You've already stated now that you're in Arizona. Yeah, I'm flipping so much. I'm dizzy. (laughs) Flipping it, flipping. You know what, though? That's what I'm about. So, you know, I'm all for it. Flip again. Do do another flip. If you don't like where you are, flip again. And if once you get comfortable where you are, I say flip again. (laughs) So, you know, I'm not going to stop you from that. But anyway, so we know that a lot of Black Americans are planning to leave America or have left the U.S. for various reasons, you know, especially just what's been going on in the United States for the past few years, let's just say. So what makes you as a Black Canadian want to live in the United States in at this time? That's a very good question. So really opportunity. So I got back to Toronto in 2019 after I left Qatar. And originally I had planned to sort of coast. I had thought I was going to travel and just take some downtime because I was working really hard in the Middle East. I know a lot of people don't have to work as hard, but I was opening a hospital. So it was a lot of work and we we worked hard and we played hard, but still just to sort of decompress from. No, not (laughs) at all. Not not at all. No, no, no. I mean, there are a lot of people who just, you know, when I was like, you know, extremely exhausted on the weekends, you know, you know me, I would kind of like, I would, I would either be traveling or I would be kind of herded up into, in my apartment, just resting. And thankfully they had friends like you and others who would sort of pull me out, but it was really intense days. Like, I think that, you know, some people like fall into a normal job routine of I'm a teacher and I go to work and these are my hours, whether I teach elementary or university, these are my office hours. And then I have my summers and my downtime. We were opening a hospital that was highly delayed, had lots of volatile and, and, sh- and shifting leadership, lots of change in direction. So it was very, un- when I say unstable, it was, it was very, yeah, it was very unstable and, and uncertain. And so no two days were alike and there was a lot of uncertainty. So we were just always pivoting. And that's why, like, to be honest with you, I tell people the Middle East always prepared me for the pandemic. But my experience was not similar to some of my friends like you and others who went either into pre-existing organizations that were functioning as normal organizations in the academic or into the banking realm that had business hours, that had bank holidays and things of that nature. So I was in a startup role in a startup organization. So it was very different. So it was very exhausting to sometimes go to work every day, but still very rewarding in all the other ways in terms of the experience that I I gained and and the financial reward. So no, there was definitely not a a jab at you and others. Uh, We were just jealous that, you know, you guys had it um, a lot more comfortable. And, but yeah, so it was different. Uh, So like I said, opportunity. I, when I got back, I I took some time to rest. I came to the U.S. to visit some friends and family. And then I thought I was going to travel to Asia for a while. I thought, you know, that's a great place to go and baseline and it's inexpensive. And then I can finish some Asia travels. And in 2020, I was supposed to go with my cousin on spring break. She's a teacher. So I thought, okay, I'll go on spring break with you, come back. And then I'll head to Asia. And then, you know, we were watching the global news at the time and they talked about the virus. Now, remember Toronto was hit by SARS in like 2010. So we were really watching because it had 
devastated one of our hospitals. And so we were watching this virus very closely. So my cousin and I held off on um, traveling. And then I thought, let me not make these plans to Asia because obviously this virus is all over Asia at this point and we needed to die out. And then I got stuck in Canada, so to speak. Uh, the world shut down March of 2020. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, we're going to stay here for a while. So I started job hunting. Like I said, the world just flipped upside down. So nothing was normal at that point. Found a job. 2020, yes. I had started yeah. interviewing for Special Olympics. And I was supposed to go to Washington to finish my interviews. And that's when the world closed down. And the job came to a halt. I later resumed or started working for them in November of 2020. And then again, COVID, the Delta wave put everything on hold again. And then that opportunity sort of came to a halt as well. And so at this point, I didn't know what I was going to do. And a friend mentioned or an acquaintance from my previous job mentioned, hey, there is a job in uh, Arizona that I think you'd be a good fit for and you should apply for. And I won't even lie. I was not looking to come back to the U.S. I didn't think I was. And just by, again, default, I, I threw my resume into the, into the mix and thought nothing of it, kind of forgot about it, to be honest with you. A few weeks later, I got a request for an interview. This was in August. I got a request for an interview in September and I thought, oh, okay, nothing of it. Sure. I'll just interview. Anyways, I interviewed, met the director. We had a great conversation and then I did a series of interviews, interviews with the team and some other panel members. And long story short, I got the job offer and I thought, you know what? Why not? I'm familiar with the U.S. The world is closed. I mean, my, ideally, I would like I would have liked to return back overseas, which I was supposed to do in my previous role. I was supposed to move to Abu Dhabi, and again, due to COVID, that all came to a halt. And I thought, you know, I could go back to the U.S. And you know what? It doesn't snow in Arizona. That was the other exciting thing about it. I was just looking for an opportunity where I could get away from those Canadian winters and the cold. I thought, okay, you know what? I can. Here, here's me. Not only was it a good job, I thought I can travel the West Coast. You know, I've never really spent as much time on the West Coast. Like I haven't been to Washington mm-hmm. State, hadn't been to Oregon. I thought my my weekend trips could be to California, and then my vacations could be to Mexico and the. I was like, that doesn't sound bad. <laughs> so, so geographically, I thought it was a win. And then the organization is a is a solid uh, pediatric institution. And I thought that's really good. And it also was just a little bit more in my wheelhouse. It was back into the patient education realm. And even though it's an inaugural role, again, uh, for me, it wasn't a startup institution. And so I could fall in line and into an easier an existing organization that already had processes and policies and and, and structure in place. My role is focused more on management and process improvement and strategic planning, but it's not from scratch. So all in all, it just made sense because I just knew that the world isn't opening up again. And I thought this is an opportunity for me to go continue working in my field, let COVID die off and then see what, what the world brings. And I, I could be here for 10 years, who knows, but like you, I'm always flipping the script. So I've given myself five years. For one, okay. my work visa is limited to what I think six years total. And then from there, either, you know, I, I leave the country or they sponsor me on a green card. And two, I'm just always open to new opportunities. I, I've never been in one place for longer. I think you said seven years. I think for me, it's like five is really that that flipping the script point. And it's not by des- it's not always by design. I think I'm always right. seeking out new growth opportunities. It's not like I'm like, what's the next best thing behind that curtain? I'm a perpetual learner. So 
I think if I'm in a space and I feel like I've just kind of outgrown the space or the space can't offer me anything more, I'm just looking for a new experience, not even an adventure, but just to learn more and just to experience more, to try new things, to challenge myself. And so I think I that's where I... I've I've come to realize that that's how I live. And for some people, that's very unsettling. Like I hear comments like, oh, when are you going to settle down? Or when are you going to just be more, more, more permanent, so to speak? Or, or a lot of comments I got was at least you're closer this time. You know, when I moved, when I told people I was moving to Arizona, I was like, oh, at least you're a short flight away. Not that people are coming to visit <laughs> anyways, but they like to think that they are, but they, they, right. I was only two, it's two to three hours. It's a little bit more comforting to know. Mentally for them. And I understand that too. Yeah. For them it I is, get it. but sure. yeah. Yeah, I'm with you as far as always looking for change. I actually was going to ask you what's next for Nicole, but you pretty much have explained that. So now what is your advice then to someone considering moving to a new country? Well, like Nike, just do it, first of all. But honestly, what is your intent? I was I was looking at a podcast or, a, sorry, a TED Talk. I think it was Stacey Abrams. And she's just talking about, you know, if you're going to passion and purpose, but your intent. And I think that's very important. I think I move like that as well. What do you want to accomplish from that experience? Um, what you see a lot of times as an expat, people who are running away from things or running to something, and then they've never really fulfilled or they never really have a f- robust experience. So if you are looking to go overseas or just to become an expat in some in a different location, what do you hope to gain out of that experience, whether it be a new job challenge and job growth, whether it be career growth, whether it be a financial reward or just a cultural experience? What do you want to gain out of it? Like we talked about being over the Middle East where it can be challenging. And so what buckets do you want to fill up? Is it your travel bucket? Is it your savings bucket? Is it your, you know, your cultural bucket or is it your bullshit bucket? And then you you go back home. And so my advice to people is what is your intent with this, this transition, have a plan and do the research and ask a lot of questions. I mean, the, the internet has made becoming an expat a lot more easier. You know, I, I'm a planner. Um, I'm, I'm a strategic planner. I'm a mitigator and I'm a researcher. And so I did a, a, a lot of, uh, homework. Now that doesn't mean everything is going to go perfect or that, you know, you're not going to have some blips along the way, but at least you can manage your expectations a little bit better. You know, Qatar was definitely a leap of faith. I did my best and I think the country was not disappointing. I think my job was what was most, most, most challenging because again, as a new organization, there wasn't a lot of information about it. There were things in blogs and um, in message boards, but that was more challenging than the country. Cause I think things about the country were a little bit more transparent and they had, they had, won the bid for the World Cup, which is happening later this year in 2022. So there was a lot more information coming about uh, Qatar in the news and in the newspapers at the time. Um, but my organization, typically when you start a job or you're looking for a job, you're researching that organization. So that was a challenge unto itself was finding more about the company than anything else. So, you know, have an intent, have a plan, manage your expectations, research, 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 ask a lot of questions, connect, and then, you know, follow through. And if you fail or if you stumble, the good thing about it is if you are an expat from a Western country, in most cases, you can come home. Unlike some of the the expats who are from developing countries or underdeveloped countries, 
going home is not as easy or is not as feasible or even something they want to do. Whereas I always knew I'm a Canadian citizen. I'm going home to fresh water and free healthcare, you know? So I didn't, I didn't feel right. like I was going home as a failure. I'm, I'm highly accomplished in my academics and in my career experience. And, uh, you know, I, and I have nothing to prove to, to anyone at this point in my life. It was more about fulfilling the things that I wanted to do. So yeah, yeah. I think that's my advice to people is just, you know, have some, some framework of a plan. You don't have to have every minute, minute detail, but you see things where people think they can go overseas with a thousand dollars and, and live their best life. And that's just, you know, if you're $1,000 going to take you that far in the country that you want to, you want to live in, you know, research, where you want to live, the safety, healthcare, and overall general rules and regulations and laws of the land. I think a lot of Westerners, particularly Canadians and Americans, go overseas with their Western mindset and think, oh, this is a minor offense or this is not a big deal. You know, people, weed is, is legal in North America. It's not legal in the Middle East. And people want to come over with CBD and oil and little things and think it's so minor it's not minder there. It's a huge offense that can have you ported in jail for life and things of that nature. So you have to be open to the laws of the land. When you go there, you have to respect the rules and regulations of that country. Absolutely. And you know what? You said a word that actually is my word for the year. So I started a journal and it asked, you know, kind of what is your word for the year? And it was intention. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you hit the nail right on the head right there is to like, Know what it is that you're looking for out of that experience and take the most out of it that you can. Sure. You know, often you will get more than what you expect out of the experience. Sometimes you will not get what you expect. But either way, I think there's something to learn from all of it. So and then you take that knowledge and you move on. Definitely. So anyway, thank you so much, Nicole, for sharing with us here on Flipping the Script and being a guest and always good to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I hope this helps somebody. I'm sure it will. Good to catch up. I know. (laughs) Get our chit chat. I know. Thank you, Nicole. You're welcome. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Flipping the Script. If you like what you have heard, please make sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Also, I would appreciate it if you would write a review and share with your friends. And... I want to hear from you. Feel free to drop me a line and let me know what you thought about this week's episode or to suggest any future topics that you would like for me to explore. Or you can just stop by and say hello. You can reach me at flippinthescript.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at flippinthescript. Want to continue the discussion? I also have a private group for ladies only on Facebook. I look forward to hearing from you. Bye for now. We're flipping the script so you'll find your way to help you embrace any trials you'll face.